name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I want to welcome you to Thursday teaching and certainly delighted and elated that uh, you are able to join us. Uh, we are uh, shooting from the sanctuary today and uh, the old sanctuary. Hadn't been in here in a, in a while, um, but we're certainly glad to, to be back in here. I want to um, call your attention and, and affection for the time that is ours to First uh, Peter uh, chapter 3. We want to start at verse 18 and we want to go through First uh, Peter chapter 4 verse 6. But before we get started, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we sense and seek what it is that the Lord will do as far as our time together is concerned. And with that, um, we go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come and we thank you for the wonderful opportunity to study your word one more time. And God, as we prepare to study your word, to learn about the essence of suffering, we pray right now, God, that by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, that you, the master teacher, would show up, teach us your precepts, let your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway. Let your word uh, remind us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. And because your word stands forever, uh, it is part of the eternality of your existence. So, Lord, as we prepare to uh, study uh, your word, to learn more, to drink deep from the well of your wisdom, uh, empower us to glean and gather uh, things that you desire for us to know and be able to then apply it to our lives so that we can be better disciples for you. Uh, it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray, and in his name we claim it done. Amen. Amen. All right. So we got a lot of territory to cover, and hopefully and prayerfully, uh, on today we will be able to cover this territory um, and this section is very very rich it is dealing with um, the aspect of suffering the suffering that Christ does which is righteous suffering so that you and I can become right with our God it is you and I appreciating who Jesus Christ is as far as our propitiation, and that's nothing but a fancy word that basically means our substitute uh, that makes us right with God. And since we're making a fast track toward the week of passion, this also deals with um, Jesus's resurrection. It talks about Jesus's power. It talks about Jesus's majesty. And it talks about how all things are subjected to the personhood of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is what Paul meant when he said that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so there's some, some interesting doctrinal things that we're going to unpack as far as our time together. So let me read <clears throat> starting at verse 3. I mean, at uh, chapter 3, verse 18. And I'm going to have you to highlight some things and underline some things. So we want to mark up our text right now. For Christ also suffered once for sins, that the 
the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit uh, if you would circle the word Christ uh, if you would highlight the phrase also suffered once for sins circle God underline the phrase being put to death in the flesh and then if you would circle the spirit now watch this you have in this text trinity do y'all see that Jesus Christ God the father made alive by the spirit now right here we're talking about resurrection all right look at verse 19 by whom he also went and preached I want you to circle the word preach in the Greek that is cariso to make a formal announcement to the spirits in prison underline the phrase to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine loan suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight souls were saved through water I want you to um, circle that whole verse verse 20 verse 20 is a, a kind of a linchpin in this particular pericope uh, because there are different aspects of looking at that I'm going to give you what I think that it's talking about but uh, we got to really dig a little deep verse 21 there is also an antitype which now saves us baptism not the removal of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ I want you to highlight the phrase there's an antitype which now saves us baptism I want you to highlight the phrase of the flesh I want you to highlight the phrase a good conscience I want you to uh, underline the resurrection of Jesus Christ I want you to circle the word God and I want you to circle Jesus Christ then what I want you to do is I want you to draw a line from the word God in verse 21 to God in verse 18 draw a line from Jesus Christ in verse 21 to Christ in verse 18 22 who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God circle the word God angels and authorities and powers haven't been made subject to him draw a line from the word God in 22 to God in 21 circle the word him in 22 and draw a line to Jesus Christ in 21 let's continue therefore since Christ suffered for us in the flesh I want you to underline the phrase um, suffer for us in the flesh circle the word Christ
And then I also want you to highlight in the flesh. Arm yourselves also with the same mind for whom he has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So I want you to underline suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I want you to highlight, circle the word in the flesh. Draw a line from in the flesh in that last phrase, the in the flesh in the first part of the phrase. Verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh. Circle the words in the flesh. Draw a line to in the flesh in the latter part of verse 1. For the lust of men, but the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. I want you to highlight that phrase, past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Uh, verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Highlight verse 5. Verse 6, for this reason the gospel was preached. Highlight the phrase, the gospel was preached. And I do believe that in this context when it talks about how the gospel was preached, we're looking at the concept of uh, evangelizo. This is the good news. The gospel was preached also to those who were dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to the spirit in God. I want you to highlight that phrase that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the spirit. Highlight that phrase. Got a lot of territory. <laughs> a lot of territory to, to, to cover. And um, um, I'm hoping that I can get through all of this today. I'm not going to make the promise that I will, though, because this is a deep, rich passage. So we may have to finish up next week versus um, have to finish this up. So let's look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust. That means that the righteous died for the unrighteous. Christ died for us. Christ suffered for us that he might bring us to God. He died in the flesh, but he's made alive in the spirit. He who knew no sin became sin that you and I might have put on us the righteousness of God. Um, Jesus Christ, whether we want to accept it or not, really is the perfect example of humanity doing the will of God the Father. Jesus did not suffer for doing anything wrong. He suffered because he did everything right. And when we look at who Jesus Christ is, his suffering for the sake of righteousness was not to make himself pure, but it was to make you and me right before our God. 
um, Jesus Christ stated the fact that he came to give his life for us. And so one of the things that you and I really have to appreciate is verse 18 when it says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, which means he does not have to die again. Remember, during this particular time, they used to have um, the Day of Atonement. And every year they would sacrifice a lamb as far as for the Day of Atonement. And that was a very elaborate ceremony that was done by the high priest. Jesus Christ is our ultimate Paschal lamb. So when he suffered, we did not have to go through this ritual over and over and over and over again. All right. Um, he died, watch this, for us. And he died in our place. And yet in his death, he remained righteous. And because he remained righteous, because he was able to keep his conscience clear, uh, he received the reward of the resurrection. Now, let me drill down even a little bit further because, I'm, again, this is so rich. And this is really, in a sense, a form of doctrinal teaching. Now, I want you to look at what has happened. Peter is letting us know that uh, Jesus Christ suffered. Jesus Christ died. And although it seems like he was defeated, he is raised again to great glory by the Spirit. So you and I as a believer can place our confidence, our faith, and our trust in God for the outcome of our suffering. All right? In any case, Christ's suffering resulted in his death for sins. For sins. That's plural. Why is it plural? Because it's our sins. It's all of the multiplicity of sins that we bring to the table. He suffered for sins. Christ paid the penalty for the sins, plural, of every person. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for the sins of the unrighteous one. Um, this kind of goes back to the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, and we can lift up that particular passage and overlay it on Jesus. Uh, when Isaiah 53 said, uh, and I want to make sure I get this quote right, um, how he made his grave, grave with the unjust. Uh, uh, he was buried with the rich. Uh, he had done nothing wrong. There were no lies in his mouth. Okay, so, so Jesus' death was not because of anything he had done wrong. It was because he was taking our place, but the people who were crucifying him did not see it as such. All right? Now, 
not only was Christ perfect, not only was Christ righteous, not only was Christ great, but Christ became the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. And it is only by him paying the penalty for our sins could he bring sinners to God. Not only was he paying the penalty for our sins, he gives us access to a holy God. It is through his sacrifice on that hill called Calvary that an unholy, that a wicked, that a sinful people can now have a relationship with a holy, righteous, just God. You and I, as disciples of Jesus Christ, have access to God's very presence. Um, and, and one day, we will be able to see God face to face. All right? So, when we think about Jesus Christ, this death was a one-time event. He was so pure, so perfect, so sufficient for our sins that we don't have to repeat this act over and over and over and over again. Now, this is what we got to understand. That Jesus Christ dying was real. He died in the flesh. Had he not died in the flesh, then we would have a problem as far as this um, sacrifice is concerned. Christ dying for sins is not the end of the story. And while he had been put to death in the flesh, he's made alive in the spirit. Now this is where if you don't know anything about a couple of things, one, one is Christology, that is the personhood of Jesus Christ. The other one is Soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation. So what we see here is the personhood of Jesus Christ, Christology, also melding together as far as Soteriology is concerned, that is dealing with the doctrine of salvation and, and, and we got to understand what is going on here when we talk about Jesus Christ dying now how can God die if he is 100% um, God and 100% human how can quote God die alright this, this is what we got to understand and this is what we got to appreciate about this particular aspect he died as far as the flesh is concerned. He, he died. He gave up the ghost. Okay? He died. Now, there, there are some scholars that, that want to say that he died in the flesh, but he was still alive in the spirit. And that since he was still alive in the spirit, he began to live a spiritual resurrection. Now, that's a problem. Because now you're separating who he is as far as uh, being fully human and fully divine. So, so that, that, that is not, not, not the case, okay? And, and we, got to be, we got to be careful because it separates Christ's human and divine nature. Got to be very, very careful about this. 
So, so it's not that he began to live a spiritual resurrection. Okay? Um, he died in the flesh, but is made alive in the spirit. Now, what is meant by this? It is meant that when he was resurrected, his spirit is connected to a body. All right? His spirit is connected to a body. So his body is made alive again because the spirit is reconnected to the body. All right? So this is what I want to drill down because Jesus is both human and divine. And, and we got to maintain the emphasis not only on his divinity, but also on his humanity. Because in Jesus' humanity, he fully identifies with us in our brokenness. He understands how we get weak. He understands how you and I get tired. He understands how you and I get hungry. He understands the pain of being betrayed and denied. He understands when people turn their back on you. He understands when folks get on your nerves. He is fully human, and yet in his full humanity, he is the best, greatest, moral example of doing the will of God. All right? So that's his humanity. In his divinity, he is able to take our place to receive our punishment for the sin that is due to us to make us right with God. So you can't separate his divinity from his humanity. So the, this, this, this aspect that Christ's flesh and his spirit are not different parts of Christ or different times of his existence. Rather, they regard Christ from different perspectives or spheres. In other words, Christ's flesh died. He died. He didn't swoon. He didn't sleep. Uh, he didn't uh, go into a three-day coma. He died. Dead. D-O-A. Dead on arrival. He died. Uh, he died. It was a total death. Death and the grave and the devil were doing a jig together. He died. They were doing the Watusi and all that stuff. He died. He died. Christ's flesh died. Yet his flesh is made alive again in a glorified state. He now has a resurrected body. That's what it means to be made alive in the spirit. He has a resurrected body. This is the paradox that although he died as a human being, his eternal spirit, his glorified body are restored to life by the power of God. He came back to life, not as a spirit without a body, not as a ghost. He had a body. And it's this body that is not hindered by time and space 
and, and, and the constraints as far as our reality is concerned. He's not limited now by human limitation. God, I can just preach on that in and of itself. I'm getting happy just talking about this. He died, but his spirit made his new glorified body alive. Let me, if I could, just take a side note for a moment uh, as I teach you all this thing, because when he died, you got to remember that on Thursday night, they whipped his body, they beat him within an inch of his life on the back of his body. He had the whips, they placed the crown of thorns, they had 72 prickly thorns on his head. He bled from his head, he bled from his back, and then what they did was they put nails in his hand and nails in his feet. They cut him in his side. Can I do a little side teaching just for a moment to help you to understand how important it is for you to appreciate this glorified body because one day when you and I die, we shall get a glorified body just like the body of Jesus. That's why I keep trying to tell y'all, y'all ain't gonna get no wings, no chicken wings, no teriyaki wings, no honey baked wings, no lemon pepper wings, no angel wings. You ain't gonna get no wings. You're gonna get a glorified body that is very similar to the body of the resurrected Christ. Here it is. I'm getting ready to bless only maybe about seven of y'all that's watching me live stream. But here's the shout for me in this moment that when he died, he did die. That body that was beaten, that body that had a crown of thorns, when he was resurrected, when he was given a glorified body, there's no mentioning of the bruises as far as his back is concerned. There's no mentioning as far as where the crown of thorns were placed. The only thing that we see mentioned is the cut in his side and the nail prints in his hand. I want to suggest that the prickly thorn, crown of thorns and the whipping on the back were meant to humiliate Jesus. They were meant to disgrace Jesus. But the nail prints in his hand and the cut in his side and the nail prints in his feet, that was the atoning, redemptive, reconciling work that he was doing for us at Calvary. May I suggest to you, my brothers and sisters who are watching me right now, that God has a way of erasing the things that were meant to dishonor and disgrace you and keep the scars to show that you've been to battle and how he is able to take what should have killed you and show others what you went through to do the work of redemption. This is what Jesus Christ meant. That's why when, when he showed up to Thomas, he still had a cut in the side. And he told Thomas, all right, Thomas, you don't believe me? Here my nail prints. Here's cut in my side. And Thomas, we are told he does not put his hand in the side. He says, my Lord and my God, when he sees him, it clicks. And Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe that's you and me. Why? Because we are crazy enough and faithful enough to believe that when God raised him from the dead, it was in a new creation. And now it is that resurrected glorified body that is now in the spiritual realm. That that body has has this this permanence, this 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 permanent reality. It is eternal. Um, he lives in the spirit because of his death and resurrection. And, and and it is in this resurrected, glorified state that he brings us by faith to God 
in relationship. He, he ushers us into the presence of God that in our current reality that we can only understand through seeing through a glass darkly. <sighs> so when we look at verse 19 and verse 20, we also see where we are told that he went and preached to spirits in in prison, spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine or God's long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Now, several questions come to mind. Um, when we look at the word preach, in this text it is cariso. Uh, cariso. And, and, and that's a very uh, important word that, that I want to drop on you right now. Um, uh, K-E-R-Y-S-S-O, cariso. The understanding of cariso basically means to make a formal announcement. That's, that's really what it means. It, it's like uh, a town herald or a town crier coming to make a, 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 a formal announcement. It's sort of like um, the um, myth of Paul Revere running through town talking about the British are coming, the British are coming. Uh, here is Jesus going into prison. What is that prison? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Um, uh, preaching to spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient. Now, this is real, real interesting to unpack. This is real, real interesting to unpack because during this time, there were different understandings of the word spirit. Spirit could be our human spirits. Spirits can be um, angels. Spirits could be fallen angels or demons. All right. But this passage also indicates that these spirits were in prison were those who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight, were saved through water. So there's some questions that may come to mind. Who were these spirits whom Jesus went to preach. Why did he go preach? What were the words of his proclamation? So, so some contend that between Christ's crucifixion and Christ's resurrection, he descended into what is called Hades or hell and preached to the spirits there, meaning that either all the people who had lived before him had died and gone to hell or the fallen angels who had sinned by marrying human women before the flood. Um, and we find that in, in Genesis chapter 6. Um, uh, this, this contention, um, we have to be careful about accepting. Uh, I don't think that this is what Christ 
meant or Peter meant when he talked about the singing into hell. There, there's another um, interpretation that during Noah's building of the ark, which was about 120 years, that Christ's spirit, the pre-incarnated Christ, was in Noah preaching to all the unbelievers. And they did not believe. And so uh, this view um, refers to Noah, that those spirits were human, and that Christ was speaking through Noah to the pre people for 120 years as he built the ark waiting for them to repent, but they didn't. And so there's a contention that the unbelievers on earth were risen because of their sins. All right. Um, so when we look at that particular perspective, uh, those who consider this to be the meaning of Peter's words, consider that Noah and his family were a righteous minority and everybody else was evil. And so just as Noah faced persecution, Peter was letting them know that you all will face persecution and that ultimately as Noah and his family were saved from the flood waters, so would everyone who believed be saved from eternal death. All right. Um, um, but then there's another understanding and that other understanding is between Christ's death and resurrection that he preached the triumph of his resurrection to falling angels. Um, the verb to make a proclamation means to make an announcement. And it is very likely that Christ was simply making the announcement that my work is finished. I've done what folks thought could not be done. I have the victory. So this prison was an abyss, a storage place for evil angels. And, and his declaration confirmed the testimony of Enoch and Noah. And, and by doing this, uh, it confirmed the con condemnation of those who had refused to believe while assuring the salvation of Noah and believer. The, the spirits of fallen angels typified by those who instigated gross morality in the days of Noah. And, and this, is, this is the interpretation that that many scholars tend to uh, accept. Because remember, when you look at um, Genesis chapter six, uh, verse two, it says, sons of God saw daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves. There was this um, supposedly intermingling of the angelic and humanity, all right? So um, this is an understanding. So what, what, what I'm trying to drive home to you all is to answer the three questions that I just mentioned. The fallen angels were the spirits. The time of the proclamation is not known for certain. We don't know if it was between Jesus' death and resurrection or at the time of his ascension, but we do know that the content was to proclaim victory to the angels that had fallen. Now, I want to suggest that when we look at this particular passage, that it is... Uh, a mystery that um, you and I should appreciate because even in these various interpretations, there's still some things we don't get. But there are some truths that emerge from what I just shared with you. And, and, and here are those truths. Number one, God is a God of love, not of lying, 
not of deceit, but of love. And God is always reaching out for those who are lost. God cares for humanity. It shows something else too that I hope will, will bless you, that God is speaking, that whatever is going on with us, God is always trying to get word out to us that he wants to make a difference as far as our lives are concerned. So God is speaking. Also, what we see is that God also always wins. Christ is victorious over sin, over death, over the grave, also over Satan. That there is nothing ultimately that's going to defeat our Christ. There is nothing, no angel, no Lucifer, no human being, no institution, no system is ultimately going to defeat our God. And that God is in the saving business. That's God's business. We need salvation. God gives salvation. God exerts God's self to rescue us and to save us. Why he does it? Because he loves. Why he does it? I have not the foggiest idea because we're always breaking God's heart and yet he continues to come and seek us and offer us that which we don't deserve. It is a move of grace. It's a move of grace. Peter is trying to get us to understand one fundamental fact. That Jesus is so glorious in his victory that it extends over every system, every institution, every evil authority, every fallen angel that has tried to wreak havoc upon our lives as far as believers are concerned. Now we know that the forces of evil ain't completely silent. They still are working. They still stirring up stuff. However, in the ultimate glorification, they will be defeated. Their final judgment is defeat. Our final judgment is victory. But it is victory not in and of ourselves. It is victory because Jesus Christ has victory. So even when we suffer our defeat, we may lose a battle, but we've already won the war. And so what we must understand is that because Christ has suffered and overcome, that when you and I suffer for the sake of righteousness, we too shall overcome. But verse 21 really drills a point, and this is a doctrinal point that I want to help us to appreciate at this time. Verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me read this to you in another translation. I want to read it in the message translation uh, just for greater clarity. And it reads like this. The waters of baptism do that for you, not by washing away dirt from your skin, 
but by presenting you through Jesus's resurrection before God with a clear conscience. Oh, oh, this, this, this is where it gets real good. Baptism, and this is why baptism is so important. Baptism, water baptism represents a complete break with your past life. Just like the flood during the time of Noah wiped the old sinful world clean, so does baptism wipe away and give you a break from your old sinful life to enter a new life in Christ Jesus. All right? So here is Paul, not Paul, Peter, exhorting them to have courage through the action to take a public stand for Christ through baptism. Now, what I want to do is I want to clear up when he says there's an antitype which saves us baptism. The act of public baptism, check this out, would save them from the temptation to sacrifice their good conscience in order to avoid persecution. All right? Now, for the first century Christian, because this is the context in which it is written, baptism meant he was following through on his commitment to Christ regardless of the consequences. All right? Now, this, this is where I really want to help us to understand the purpose of baptism. Baptism does not save us from sin. Okay? Because notice what it says, an antitype which now saves us baptism, not from the removal of the filth of the flesh, that's sin, but an answer of good conscience toward God through the resurrection of of Jesus Christ. Now watch this. I believe that what Peter is doing in this text is putting the waters of baptism side by side with the waters of the flood. And just as the waters of the flood were meant to clean the world at that particular time of sin, the waters of baptism is to clean our consciousness so that we can do the things that God will have for us to do. So I believe that Peter is lifting up baptism as both a sign and a seal of salvation. It is a sign like my wedding ring is a sign that I'm married. Now, my wedding ring does not marry me to Peter, but my wedding ring is a sign that I'm married to Peter. So even if I don't have the wedding ring, I'm still married. However, it's good to have the wedding ring because the world needs a sign. It is a sign and a seal. It is the sign of a solemn oath made before God. This is why we should never take baptism lightly okay because it is in the act of baptism that you and I 
as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we make identification with Jesus Christ. What happens? First of all, we are separated from the lost. This is what baptism is a sign of, that we are separated from the lost. Okay? That's why water baptism is so important because it's a sign that we're making a pledge to follow Jesus. We're separated from the lost. Number two, water baptism is a sign that we're coming up in new life. All right? It's a sign that we're coming up in new life. All right? So when you and I step into the water of baptism, we are making identification with Jesus's crucifixion, resurrection, uh, burial, and resurrection. That when you and I step into the water of baptism, that is like us dying with Christ. When we go and we go into the water, when we're being buried into the water, that's why we as Baptists believe in being baptized by the process of immersion. We are buried with Christ in the watery grave. When we come up, we come up resurrected with Christ. Okay, So we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ through water baptism. It is a sign. Water baptism doesn't wash away sin literally. It is an outward symbol of an inward transformation that happens because you and I have expressed our faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism, again, doesn't save anybody, but the belief it represents results in salvation. The only reason that baptism works to begin with is because Jesus Christ got up from the dead. Because Jesus Christ is resurrected. That's the only reason why baptism makes any sense. Now, here's where I wanted to, I knew I wasn't going to finish this. Here's where I want to, 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 to drive uh, uh, the, the meaning because when he says that baptism now saves you, it results in a pledge of good consciousness towards God. This is when you're baptized, I want you to understand that your baptism is really you making a covenant with God through the expression of your faith. And it is an outward sign to the community, to the church, to the world that you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is why you don't play with baptism. And this is why, this is why it's important for you to understand that in the Baptist understanding that baptism should always come before you're able to partake of the Lord's Supper. Okay? If there's an order, as far as the ordinances of the Baptist church are concerned, and I'm talking Baptist church. This is why baptism precedes you partaking of the Lord's Supper. Because it is you having affirmed to the public, to the public, that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior and it now gives you access to the Lord's meal. Let me, let me, let me put it to you like this. It's like a wedding. It's like a wedding. Now, I know the cultural.
culture in which we live. I know the world in which we live. I, I know where we are. I get it. And I know what I'm getting ready to say. It sounds so foggy. And it sounds so, so old, old fashioned and so archaic. But this is why it's God's desire that before there is sexual intercourse, that there is marriage. Just as you should not have sex before you're married, this is why you should not partake of the Lord's Supper before baptism. Just as baptism is a sign and a seal that you have accepted Jesus Christ would then allow for you to partake of the ordinance of communion, this is why having a wedding ring or being married gives you now access to have sex with your spouse. Okay? It is a pledge. It is an outward expression that you now belong to somebody else. And when you are baptized, that means that you are letting the world know you desire to please God. And you need God to help you to live out the inner life of transformation and discipleship. This is why we got to continue to play, pray for repentance and forgiveness. Because the way that we identify ourselves as Christians is through the act of baptism. Now watch this. Those who are reading Peter's letter, that when the pressure comes because they're being persecuted for their faith, could turn back. But because they were publicly baptized, that public baptism really keeps them from renouncing their faith. Why? Because now the church community holds them accountable. That's why we need koinonia. That's why we need the local fellowship. Baptism is more than just some spiritual bath. Baptism is not some magical hocus pocus uh, moment that stands apart as far as the gospel is concerned. It is a sign. It is a seal. It is a sacrament that reminds us that God has saved us in Jesus. So when we're baptized, we said, yes, God, we believe your promise. Yes, God, we identify with your people. Yes, God, you're the leader of our homes and our lives. Yes, God, we join with others who love you, who trust you, who serve you. Yes, God, we claim the promise that we are saved and now we have a clean conscience. We can stand before you with the new start and the eternal hope that we belong to you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit continues to clean our conscience. Okay. You and I, through the process of baptism, we are now initiated into the church. Water baptism has no spiritual power in itself. The rite of baptism does not save you, regardless of your faith. The only reason that baptism makes any sense to begin with is because you and I have placed our faith, hope, and confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the key piece right there. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Baptism saves us by giving us a new conscience because Jesus Christ has made salvation possible through what? His resurrection. Through his resurrection. I think I want to stop at verse 22 for today. Sure. That refers to God. Yeah, that refers to God. So when we look at verse 22, when we look at verse 22, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. This is, of course, in reference to the exaltation of Christ. This refers to his ascension. This refers to his ascension. This helps us to understand that Jesus has overcome any and all opposition, whether it's from the devil whether it's from fallen angels, whether it's from a, a corrupt authority as far as humanity institu human institutions are concerned. And, and, and what you got to understand is that Peter is an eyewitness to his ascension. Peter was there when he ascended to Christ and he told them, go wait in Jerusalem and uh, tarry in Jerusalem and he's going to give them power to be witnesses of his in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He is a witness. He saw Jesus get taken up on the cloud. All right? And, 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 and to talk about Jesus being at the right hand of God, back during that particular time uh, in biblical antiquity, to be at the right hand was to be in a position of great favor and authority. So with Jesus being at the right hand of God the Father, it is showing that he has raw power, he has dignity, he has sovereignty on the basis of his resurrection. There's no other person in all of creation like Jesus. And so his authority means that angels submit to him. Okay? Uh, it means that all the spiritual beings in the universe, both good and evil, one day will have to bow down to him. It means one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of, of God the Father. Paul lifts that up in Philippians chapter 2 starting at verse 5. And one day he's going to judge in all his power and authority and every judgment he makes will be absolutely right and correct. What we see in verse 22 is the glorified Christ in such a way that we got glimpses of him or the disciples got glimpses of him when he was here on earth. And only really three disciples really saw him like that. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration known as Mount Hermon when Jesus took them up there and um, the clothes that Jesus had changed into a white sparkling robe. Elijah and Moses appeared beside him. Peter wanted to build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. And Peter, you know, bless his heart, didn't really know Jesus. And he put Jesus on the same level as Elijah and Moses 
but not realizing that before Elijah and Moses ever came into being that Jesus was. But what he, but what I can say is that Elijah and Moses really exemplified a synthetic or a synthesis of who Jesus is. Check this out. Elijah never died. Moses did die. Did y'all catch that? Elijah never died. He was taken up in a whirlwind. He ascended. Moses did die. All right. So what we see in Jesus is the ascension similar to Elijah, but dying like Moses. All right. I'm done for today. It's 12. It's, it's, I'm done for today. I'm done for today. Um, before I close, are there any, any questions? Any questions? Any questions? All right. Well, as, as, as we close out today, I want to um, remind you that uh, here at St. Paul, we continue to do the, the wonderful work of ministry. We continue to uh, do the work of the church, even though the building is closed temporarily one day. Um, soon, we're going to be opening back up. We're beginning to have some preliminary conversations about when we're going to come back in. And we want to, of course, uh, take your safety and security uh, with the utmost care and concern. And so while we continue to do the work of ministry, of course, you all continue to give. And I want to encourage you that if you want to give right now, there are three ways that you can give. The first one is by a mail-in check or money order to the church here at 1401 Allen Street, Charlotte 28205. Or you can drop off check, money order, or cash at the church. But call the church office first at 704-334-5309. Make sure someone is here on Monday through Friday between the time of 9 to 4.30. And uh, make sure that someone is here to receive your offering. We'll put it in the safe and make sure it's counted the following Sunday. You can go to our website and through ACS or Church Life, you can give as far as that's concerned or you can give through the app called Givelify. And I want to encourage you uh, to continue to, to support us as far as the work of ministry is concerned. Um, we've been at this for over a year now doing it in virtual space, but we're reaching more people than we would as far as coming to the church building. And we're reaching people all across this country. And we want to continue to expand this and to grow this. But we also want to make preparation for when we come back as far as having you back in the sanctuary. So uh, thank you for your time. I want to close us out in prayer and uh, look forward to you are checking us out where we will finish up uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come and we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to hear your word, to study your word. We pray that we were able to glean a better understanding of who Jesus Christ is as far as how he paid the price for our sin, how not to take baptism so frivolously, what baptism really means, and now how Jesus Christ is really in the essence of divine sovereignty. As we leave from this moment of prayer, but never from your presence, keep us in your sovereign care until we're able to come back together again, whether it's in work, word, witness, or worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you all. Have a smile upon you. Take care.